Hello and welcome to Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Bow, clinical psychologist and coach, mother of two dramatic births myself. This podcast is all about helping the helpers, supporting and training birth workers to feel connected and confident to navigate birth trauma. A huge part of what I do is help to uplift wounded healers. I know there are so many of you and I honour you for making some time for yourself right now. This podcast is also available in video format. It's a new thing I'm trying. I like seeing faces, even if it means I have to get out of my pajamas. So head on over to my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Erin Bow. Before we start, if you've been enjoying this podcast and you're listening in iTunes, can you hear pause for a second and leave me a quick review? I want these stories and support and messages of hope to reach as many people who are interested in birth as I possibly can. Reviews really help that algorithm. They show the podcast to more people. There's no money in it for me. This podcast is just my gift to you and myself to temporarily shift out of mum life and talk to some other grown-ups. And I really so, so, so value your support. It keeps me going. I love stories. This is why I do what I do. This is why I do this podcast. Sharing stories can be such soul medicine. And I really do believe that as healers and helpers, we cannot walk this path alone. We need support, a sounding board, and a circle, either a physical or a metaphorical one, for storytelling. Before I introduce you to Rachel, I wanted to let you know that I'm opening the doors for my mini birth trauma training again this week. This is a repeat of the training I ran in July. So it's two 90-minute sessions, Thursday, October 24 and October 31. It will start at 12 midday Melbourne time. And this is the most accessible version of my training that there is. It's 100 Australian dollars. I'm not offering it again at this price. I'm doing it simply because someone asked me to. So never be afraid to ask. You never know what someone might say. Um, this training is not a pity party. Yes, I'm going to walk you through some of the fundamentals of birth trauma and vicarious trauma, but the overall arching goal is to teach you about positivity, strength, growth. So if you want to join me live for a bite-sized piece of my training, it is tiny. This is like a microscopic version of what the bigger course is going to be. But if you want to see my face and have me see your face and ask some questions, and just involve yourself in a bit of community. I would love to see you there. The link will be in the show notes. Or you can go to my socials and you can find the link there. Mm. My guest today is a testament to the value of good support and investing in yourself. To hear a strong woman articulate her trauma. To see and hear that she's not broken. And is using her experience as a conduit for others' growth. Well, that is just my happy place. I will never tire of this privilege, what it means to receive these stories and have people trust me with them. Rachel Rose is a full-spectrum dynamo doula, hell-bent on bringing down toxic birth culture and supporting women to reconnect to their resilience and strength. Rachel is such a calm, sunny presence. I know this is a big topic, but you'll walk away from this conversation feeling expanded rather than contracted. We talk about what happens when a birthing person ticks that box and says, yes, I've had the experience of sexual abuse. And in Rachel's case, 
What happens when it's never spoken about again? What can we be doing to better serve people, give them choices and make them the expert in what they need to feel safe? Sexual abuse, assault, molestation or whatever language we put to it, it must exist within a spectrum. It must never be about getting into comparisons and expecting people to qualify, oh, does this count? It's not a cognitive experience. It is a bodily one. Sometimes it's not until you're much older, go through a pregnancy, birth, that you even begin to think about some of the experiences that you had as a child. Applying that label, sexual abuse, it's complex. Rachel and I will talk about the impact of the abuse she experienced, but not go into detail as we're mindful of re-traumatisation. We talk about navigating all the bodily things, vaginal exams, stretch and sweeps, catheters, suppositories, the language that's used, positions the body is put in, and having hands-on from other people when you're learning to breastfeed. And then some of the anxieties that happen postpartum, those intrusive thoughts that happen that are totally normal, but no one ever wants to talk about. As I've said before, the goal needs to be about establishing safety not getting the information. You're more powerful than you know. If birth workers and the people they serve remember that they are powerful, then we'll change the world. <laughs> good morning, Rachel. How are you? I'm feeling good, Erin. I'm excited I'm to talk to you. Excellent. Shall we start off by giving people an introduction to who you are and what you're about? Sure. So my name is Rachel Rose and I am a full spectrum dynamo doula. So I've trained with Angel Phoenix, also known as Angela Gallo. And I am working with women and people from the preconception space to the postpartum space to debriefing birth and breastfeeding experiences and trauma. Uh, And I work a lot via distance so um, I'm working with people all over the world on those topics and absolutely loving the work and I reached out to you because when I went to the Melbourne Dynamo Doula training in March it was the first time that I sat in a room with women and disclosed my experience of navigating the hospital system as someone who had survived sexual abuse and had experienced sexual abuse trauma. And before that experience, I I really felt just an incredible amount of shame around behaviours that I had done in my pregnancy and, and how I felt so out of control with everything. And sitting in a room with women who listened with open minds and open hearts and some said you know me too I I know I know what that's like it was like a weight just dropped off me yeah and it was a safe container it was a safe space to share and there was follow-up throughout the rest of the training but just being able to know that one I wasn't alone like I honestly thought that You know, you've experienced sexual abuse. You think that you're the only one in the world that has, even though you know 
that it's very common and when you dig into the statistics it's it's, it's horrifically common mm. um, but you feel like your thoughts and your feelings and your intrusive mind is is your own and nobody else would ever understand and so I sat in that room and I was I was seen and I was heard and I felt wow there's something to this story that I need to share more widely and so I've been sitting on it since March and then yeah I reached out to you because I'm, I'm ready to share it now I've, I've been delving into healing modalities and been in therapy for six years and I'm, I'm almost at a completed cycle with psychotherapy I'm, I'm mm -hmm. about to finish up there and you know I know my own boundaries I know what what's okay for me to share and I want to destigmatize um, sexual abuse trauma and I think we need to have this conversation because it is so common and because it is almost guaranteed to come up during a pregnancy birth or postpartum experience so that is why I'm here I think it's such an important conversation to have, just as you just said. And what I want to add here, we are talking about it a little bit before we press record, but the idea that it's not so much about the details. It's not a requirement to go into the details because one of the most important things about any sort of sexual trauma, whatever you want to call it, abuse, assault, molestation, like there's so many different words for it. And I think often this is where people get stuck. Because one of the first things that often will happen if you're in a situation where you go to police is that they will ask you, well, what was it? Well, what was the details? And then there's this almost like sliding scale of, well, is that, does that count or not? So what I want everybody to come into this with to start off with is knowing that it's the sort of synchronicity with birth and birth trauma. If someone says this was traumatic for me, that is it. You don't need to define it. You don't need to compare it to what someone else might have had. It's just, this is how this felt in my body. I'm not okay with this. Full stop. Absolutely. And we live in a patriarchal culture where sexualized violence is, is in our lineage. Like if it, if it wasn't us, us, it was our mother. Or if it wasn't our mother, it was our grandmother. And if it wasn't our grandmother, it was our friend. So we're in this culture that it, it's just so prevalent. And Sexual violence can be a look or it can be many looks over many years by the wrong person or mm -hmm. comments by the wrong person, particularly if they're family members or if there's a power dynamic. And so mm -hmm. the spectrum of sexual trauma is so vast. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's not about what happened. It, yeah, it's about how your body expresses the trauma or how your mind expresses the trauma. And... So when I did go through my pregnancy, although I had been in therapy for a number of years, it, sexual abuse was not a label that I, I used mm -hmm. to identify my own experiences. And it wasn't at the conscious awareness as it is now. Mm -hmm. But there was a body felt sense that something had happened. And, and, and you know, in a pregnancy, it's it brings that to the surface because your body is shared with someone else. Mm. And then when you go through a medical system, there's, there's poking and prodding and all sorts of um, appointments that are centered around genitals. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of inescapable in a way. Mm. And so I wanted to talk about the fact that I went through um, 
a hospital system to birth. I was unable to get into a midwifery group program, so I did shared care. I had three GPs during that shared care because they left and then I fired a GP. So I wasn't happy with their behaviour around weight stigma and fat phobia and conversation for another day. Oh, good on um, you. Just interject. Yeah. Like, good on you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so then I was seeing GPs and then I was seeing midwives in the antenatal clinic and then also obstetricians at various points of the gestation. And so through all of that, I would say probably 30 different faces. Mm. I have no recollect, recollection of names. I wouldn't be able to tell you a single person's name that I met. And as they do in the hospital system, they have an intake form and they get you to disclose whether or not you've had sexual abuse trauma. And I said yes. And then I swear to God that it was closed in a file and it was never mentioned again or it never informed any kind of practice or behaviour from that point yeah. on. So it was like a leaking of knowledge from mm. me. Like I'm giving you this gift that this is what has happened to me, hoping that it would then inform behaviour mm. and nothing was ever said again. And really feeling like I was just the number on my yellow pregnancy card versus a person with experiences, with feelings, with, you know, this wealth of life <laughs> um, experience that should be taken into account. I was just a number. I would wait for an hour and a half for my appointments and then I would be in there for three and a half minutes. Yeah. And they would be very focused on, like, che checking fundal height and taking blood pressure and doing all of those things but there was never any sense that this was like a transformational emotional spiritual experience it was just sort of okay get you in get you out yeah and so i i had a doula I, I look back now and I actually don't think I disclosed to my doula that I had sexual abuse history. I disclosed to them that I had um, I was in recovery from an eating disorder. I'd had an eating disorder for 10 years, which is very related to the yeah. sexual trauma. Yeah. Um, but that was the language I put around my, my mental health. It was that I had an eating disorder. So that's all the information I really gave her to use. Uh, and then towards the end of my pregnancy, um, when I got to 40 weeks and then the conversation of induction started to ramp up and then I started to have to advocate for myself in between 40 to 42 weeks, which is when I did end up having an um, induction, there was just so much anxiety. And as someone that has lived through... Um, sexual abuse where there's a mix of anxiety and pleasure and pain and it's all kind of wrapped up in this messy bundle when I was in such a heightened anxious state towards the end of my pregnancy the abusive sexual intrusive thoughts were at their all-time high yeah. and so each night I would be just picturing myself being abused and violated and um, experiencing violence and then I would be cradling my stomach and crying and mm -hmm. 
telling my partner that I've ruined my daughter's sexuality because I'm having these thoughts and she's inside me and we are one. And just the, oh, I can't even really describe how awful that mm. was. And I've spoken about the anxiety publicly in terms of the induction and the pressure from the hospital and being an advocate, but I've never really brought up that this was another very significant layer to it all. Yeah. So compulsive masturbation, things that just were coming out of me uncontrollably, like I, I, these feelings of being disassociated from my body, feeling like things were happening to me, feeling mm. like, you know, I was told, do I want to leave the hospital with an alive baby or a dead baby? And so yeah. then I was dreaming of stillborn babies and giving birth to a st So just I, the anxiety was so high and then that just brought everything to the surface. Mm. And thank God I was in therapy because I was able to, you know, cry and, and talk to my therapist about this. And she was able to really sit with me and honour me and say, it's okay. And like, she could understand why it was coming to the surface for me and yeah. that I wasn't ruining my daughter's sexuality for her whole life. And no. the fact that I was consciously aware of, you know, even the, the effect of my stress on her showed that I cared deeply and that I was a good mother and that we would get through it together. And yeah, so that was, I'm so glad I had that because I really could have gone very, very dark and maybe even disassociate from the whole experience. Like I feel like even though it was, it was really difficult, I was very still attached to my daughter and I was very aware that we were doing it as a team. Mm. And so to fight against a medical induction, I started to do things like natural inductions. <laughs> um, which, you know, I know more now. I'm also a doula now. And I, I, I don't think I ever would have been able to go into labor naturally mm. with the pressure that I was experiencing and what I was going through mentally. But I tried all of the things. And so, you know, the, you go to forums and you read <laughs> what to do. And, you know, eating pineapple and bouncing on balls. I was going to ask you, fine. did you eat a couple of pineapples? And, yeah, until my, oh, my mouth yeah. was raw and I'd eat dates until I'd have diarrhea. And, oh. like, that's, that's all fine, whatever. But, you know, I heard that sex could help. And so I was like, oh, well, let's just do that. And I have a beautiful partner who's very supportive and we've been together for seven years and he's been with me through my sexual abuse healing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, he's a safe person to explore things with, but the energy that I was bringing to that sex was, was just a repeat of doing something that I didn't want to do mm. for the sake of, of others and not yeah. for the sake of him, not for the sake of his pleasure. It was like, let's have heaps of sex so I don't have to have a medical induction. Mm. And very heavily pregnant, not feeling well. I'd also vom I vomited all throughout my pregnancy until yeah. I, I gave birth. And so there's no beauty in that sex towards the end of no. it. It was really just like a means to an end. But then what that does to someone who has experienced sexual trauma, it kind of takes you back into that zone mm. of feeling like you're out of control and you're, you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. 
So there was lots of that happening, um, which I'm sure didn't help overall. And then there was so the offer of stretch and sweep. And now all throughout, I was, I was pretty adamant. I did not want to have stretch and sweeps. I did not want to have cervical checks. I kind of knew the link between, you know, past trauma and, and how that could potentially stir up feelings. However, in the circumstances, it was, I really didn't want to syntocin and induced labor. And so I thought, okay, if this is going to buy me time, then I will consent. But then knowing the position that I was in, it really was coercion in the form of consent. And having a male doctor, you know, explain to me the process and say, it's not painful, it doesn't hurt, you know, it's not that bad. Yeah. I've had two and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I was crying and saying, I don't want to have it done. And he's, and he was saying, you don't have to, you don't have to. And I walked out of that appointment and I remember going, oh, but this is, this might be my only way to not have that induction. So it's I'll do it. It's a blur, isn't it? Like, oh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. It's like you get the stretch and sweep and then like a couple of hours later, hey, presto, off you go. I, yeah. Yeah. So I walked back into the appointment and I said, okay, all right, I'll do it. And even just that, it's like a resignation versus any kind of wanting to do it. And look, he talked me through the process, but it was painful. I found it painful. I found that I was, my legs were very tight. I felt very closed off. Like it's the positioning, you know, I take a lot of time and effort with my pap smears, with um, um, building a relationship with that GP, informing her that she needs to talk me through the process. And I wasn't able to explain in that moment that that, like I need a lot of time and buffer and breathing, but I didn't get that. And so it was painful. It felt violating. I left. I went to the bathroom. I was bleeding. I cried all the way home. Mm. And then, like, I can look back with a lens now. I didn't have this awareness then. But it kind of triggered off that good girl, submissive thing. So I went back for three more. So I had, you know, three or four stretch and sweeps in the space of a week. Mm. And each time it's just like, pulling me back into that space and I did it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I know. And I did it by myself. I didn't have anyone in the room with me. My partner had to work very much until I I was pregnant because he just started a new job. He had no leave. So I was just alone and alone and experiencing pain and walking home, just kind of feeling in a daze and feeling like it was the beginning of my birth experience being sort of taken away from me mm. in, in a sense. And look, it didn't even avoid an, a medical induction. I had one at 42 plus um, three days or something like that. And that was purely like, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle the, the, the stress of the idea that I would be responsible for a stillborn baby, all of that mm-hmm. kind of jazz. So I went in and then I had prostaglandin gel inserted so again it's like more things in my vagina more touching of the genitals starting a labor like that when I my whole pregnancy I dreamed of laboring at home and you know having a beautiful space having my dog there being on the deck like 
I spent a lot of time visualizing what I wanted and then it started in a very sterile, medicalized way. Now, being that I was 42 plus a couple of days, I, I did go into labor from the prostaglandin gel. Um, and I was transferred to the birthing unit. But they, to transfer, they need, whether that's 100% true, but they told me they needed to do cervical checks to measure dilation so that I could go from the maternity ward onto the birthing unit. So that started a process of cervical checks. And then when I transferred, I had a, I had a beautiful midwife and I explained, I don't want cervical checks. Like I want to labor. We dimmed the lights. I used the showers. I was in the bath. I was laboring like really in power for, mm. for about 10 hours, except that she still asked me every three hours mm. to have a cervical check. And so even though it's on my form, sexual abuse survivor, I've expressed, I've said, I don't want these. She still asked. And I ended up getting my hospital notes. Uh, I applied for my records because it was incongruent with her as a person. She was actually like very supportive of me moving. The telemonitoring kept breaking down and she's like, don't worry about it. Like, we'll kind of work around that, fudge the numbers, it's okay, you're doing so well. She's like, you should home birth next time. You shouldn't even come into the hospital. Like, yeah. Thanks, but I'm here now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, super supportive of, of the fact that I wanted to have a physiological birth, even though it had started with, with prostaglandin. But then I can see in her notes that she's writing, Rachel is refusing cervical checks. Rachel is refusing cervical checks. Hmm. We need to, I need to check. I'm not sure what's going on. And I can, I can just see that tension, I, mm. seeing her notes and knowing how she was with me, going out, probably getting pressure from the obstetrician on charge or whoever, the head midwife. You need, to, you need to find out where she is. You need to find dilation. And so then eventually, I think six or so hours into it, she's like, look, we really need to do one. We don't know how baby is. And the language around that, frighten me like we don't know if love is feeling okay we're not getting much on the telemonitoring which look i know mm. as a doula some of these things don't even have evidence but it's, it's, it's in the hospital system anyway and that's common practice and so i consented to a cervical check and you know lo and behold i hadn't dilated in mm. the 10 hours or, or six hours or whatever um and yeah, just measuring my body's progress through fingers in my vagina is just not what I wanted in a labor. Mm. And it's not what know, anybody wants. Like, it's, not, it's not what anyone wants, but also physiologically, like the, the cervix can close when yeah. it's not feeling safe and comfortable. And to get me out of the bath, to go on a bed, to lie on my back, to have a cervical check, and then to find out the dilation was only around four centimetres. Well, look, it could have even been bigger just moments before that. And then I could have closed up completely. Like yeah, mammals in the wild will can stop the labour process altogether if they're feeling unsafe. Yeah. Um, but psychologically, I had a crisis of confidence and then I opted for an epidural and then syntocinin. And then it was a very intervention-heavy birth, which yeah. ended in... Um, Birthing on my back, supine position, legs in stirrups, having no sensation whatsoever of 
um, my, my genitals having no sensations of contractions. They lost all of the reading on the CTG monitoring. And so they weren't even able to tell me when my contractions were coming. Like I literally felt like a, a dummy, like yeah. a dead weight. I had, I had no idea. And so they said, Oh, do you feel anything? I'm like, oh, I feel kind of a sensation in my anus. And they're like, okay, go with that. And so I'm just pushing at these weird points and they're kind of coaching me through all of that pushing and my legs were shaking like uncontrollably to the point where my doula had to hold down one side, my partner had to hold down the other, mm. or they were just like rocketing off the bed. And it's bright lights, there's multiple people down there. Um, the obstetrician had come in and said, we're not getting any readings. We don't know if baby's in distress. I think you should have an emergency cesarean. Like I'm, I'm gonna go potentially prep for that. She would leave the room. The midwife would say, no, don't listen to her. You can have a vaginal delivery, like let's do this. And so it was like push, push, push while she's away. Mm. And then she got called into a cesarean, thankfully. Um, well, not thankfully for the other person, but it was just like this lack of respect for what yeah. was actually going on there. And mm. yeah, just not what I pictured and just, being on my back in and of itself and having to be held down. Oh, it's just, it's not, it's not a good place for a survivor of sexual trauma. No. Now giving birth, when she came out, my daughter was placed on my chest, magical, beautiful, amazing. And things melted away almost instantaneously. And we got to have a beautiful golden hour. And I mean, a golden hour in the sense that, there's still bright lights. Things are still <laughs> happening. It, you know, <laughs> silver hour, bronze. Yeah, bronze hour. But you know, my partner's there. He's crying. We're we're relishing it. It's it's gorgeous. The the hormones were flowing and all of that kind of thing. Then this OB comes back into the room, and she wanted to repair um, uh, a graze, a tear. Probably shouldn't have even needed stitches, but anyway, she brought resident doctor in with her male doctor and they sat there and she didn't address me and she started to repair stitches and she says to the doctor next to her no one ever tells these women their vaginas will never be the same <laughs> and like it's talking about my vagina and you know also the technical side of what she was doing because it's mm. just teaching him and that kind of thing but I remember just feeling really like like I was hovering over the moment, like, is this happening? Mm. I feel so disassociated from my body. Yeah. Like this is happening to me, but I've got a baby on me. How do I react? And mm. like, it was very, I was in my consciousness and I, I was like, should I say something? But you know, I just wanted to enjoy my baby. Mm. But reflecting on that after the weeks later, it just made me so angry. It's like, how dare she? How dare she reduce that whole experience that I've just gone through, like the most transformational experience. And she's talking about the, the look and feel of my vagina in that moment. Like, hmm. Just completely disrespectful. And, you know, I've shared this in, in another podcast. She was wearing high heels and a full-on um, formal outfit because she was catching a plane to Melbourne later that day and she wanted to go to the Qantas lounge. She had a very expensive handbag on her arm the whole time. 
during my labor. And so just that, like, where is the reverence and respect to the birthing person when you're like dressed to the nines and all you can talk about is the Qantas lounge? It just makes me think of like, um, I don't know, like Barbie OB, like yes, <laughs> under the handbag and just very bizarre behaviour, truly mm. bizarre behaviour. Um, and so, yeah, there were there were all sorts of pockets of my birth that I'm still decompressing and debriefing and and. You know, after it, you know, Angela, Angel talks about this, like you're so high, a lot of things can be forgiven. You just love your baby. You're so happy that you're mm. both you know, alive and healthy. And so I think I would talk about my birth experience like it was amazing, like yeah. for a while. I was like, wow, it was incredible. And, you know, I had a vaginal birth and she was 4.2 kilos and wow, 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 wow. And, I mean, there were elements where I was totally bossing it really strong in my power but then there are also lots of moments where there's it's just not acceptable how I was broken to how I was handled the fact that my trauma was never really considered mm. and so I like to also talk to clients that you can change your mind about how you interpret your birth experience it can yeah. change over time over the next decade like it's never black and white um, I think I really wanted to give off an appearance that I had a really great experience. I don't know why. I think I'd hired a doula and I'd done birth, childbirth education classes, so I wanted to make out that, like... Oh, I relate to that so much. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to feel like I could say there were elements I didn't like, and so it's only in the last sort of year that I'm really going, oh, yeah, that's so great. And then... Five hours after the birth, I had a postpartum hemorrhage. So I was breastfeeding my daughter in the chair and um, yeah, I, I thought I wet myself, but it was blood. And so then it was an emergency situation. Mm. Not expected because it's quite um, a distance after the birth. Yeah. But a team rush in within seconds, like a whole emergency team, mm. probably 10 to 15 people, I would say. Um, and my partner was in the shower. He came out, he called, called the team in. We didn't even know to press the button. Like we were so mm -hmm. green in the hospital and they got me into the bed. Um, my daughter was in my partner's arms and it was just very things happening to me. Not a lot of time. Like I can a hundred percent appreciate that. It's not the time to go. We have to do X, Y, and Z. And can I get your consent to do this? Because I was hemorrhaging. So um, I had to have medication inserted into my anus. I had to have um, uh, cannula and things like IV inserted into me. And then manual extraction of blood clots with, with a gloved hand. Mm. And also palpating on the uterus. So I had one doctor like pushing down on my uterus. I was sucking gas at this stage because it was... Yeah. So painful. It was more painful than any anything in the labour because you don't have all the hormones to go with it, I guess. And it felt very frightening. It felt mm. like a life or death situation for yeah. me. My partner says he didn't feel that because he was able to see 
how quickly they were responding, mm. how much they were looking at each other like they knew what they were doing. No one seemed really stressed. Yeah. But for me, I was like, I'm going to die just after I finish yeah. birth. And, you know, I remember take care of Eloise, like, oh, my God, I love you kind of thing. Yeah. But then also just so much was happening to my body and it was just really hard to stay in the moment so the gas helped because it kind of made me drowsy and clouded my thoughts in some ways um but yeah having people push down on my uterus and then having like a hand inside me removing mm. things oh just yeah <laughs> there's a lot of elements of sexual abuse in that experience even though it was not sexual abuse yeah. Um, yeah it was for it was for my safety and you know it was very important that they acted quickly um and I did the 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 golden thread of that was a midwife that held my hand and was stroking my arm and was saying you're gonna be okay you're gonna be mm. okay and so I think about that and I no, think about chills I've had a yeah about this before I had an anaesthetist it was just like, just held my hand and said, you're going to be all right. And the difference yeah. And I imagine if we didn't have that. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. she centred me and, you know, she, yeah, just, and then she came and she checked on me the next day. And that was probably the only continuity of care I had in the whole 10 months of my experience yeah. is, you know, her coming the next day and checking up on me and remembering that I'd had that experience and being, mm. being worried about me and wanting to, to make sure I was okay. So, yeah, just holding my hand and, and stroking made a huge difference. And so I think, you know, we'll jump in at the end about how doulas can support. And I think that is, that is a, a profound way, just being mm. physically present with someone when they're experiencing something that is outside of their control can be an anchoring and it, it made a world of difference and it was it needed to be her it couldn't have been my partner at that stage because i think we that would have been both, us both wrapped up in that experience whereas he yeah. was able to be in the corner with my daughter um yeah and not have to be so heavily heavily involved <sighs> yeah so then I wanted to talk about slipping into breastfeeding and how I wasn't really anticipating things to come up. I just truly, I didn't anticipate that sexual abuse trauma would come up anywhere. I was just yeah. quite blind to that. Um, you know, birth is to normalise, I think. Yeah. It's so important to normalise that. And I've said before, and I'll keep saying, for a lot of people, you don't even apply that thinking, those words mm. to that experience because it's not a cognitive experience, it's a bodily mm. experience. And, you know, when people say, oh, but, you know, shouldn't you have known? I'm like, well, how could you know? Like, how could, how could you possibly know? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, you know, a lot of people are walking around with, experiences that potentially happen to them in their baby time years that they have no conscious awareness of and then it's a positioning that they're put into or it's words that are used that kind of trigger the the bodily reaction and that can be very confusing and and so 
yeah, we need to be aware of that, that even if you're working with clients that don't disclose or say they haven't been, been abused, then they, they still possibly could have been. And that's not to say I want people to, to listen to this call to dive in and start digging for trauma and no. try and find it. No, but, please don't do this. Yeah, but <laughs> just an awareness that really we should be working, when we're working with anyone, just make the assumption that at some mm. point something out of their control has happened to them. And mm. so therefore, if something out of control happens in the birth experience, it can be, it can trigger a reaction. Yeah. Um, so with the breastfeeding, a few things happened is... I immediately felt like a sense that my breasts were not my own, um, not because my baby needed them, but because of how they were handled in the hospital by midwives. Oh, yep. <laughs> um, you know, I had the classic grabbing, make it a hamburger, but they're doing it and they're kind of shoving it in. Not a lot of speaking, not a lot of guiding that I am the one to hold and I'm the one to position. Like I, I had a lot of hand help <laughs> and you, yeah you've just given birth and then suddenly breasts which look they're not sexual organs but for most of the last decade they had been involved in sexual experiences for me I had never shown my breasts in public I had never even worn a bikini like I was so closed around my breasts because they're quite large as well and then suddenly they're just like open fodder and people uh yes Yes. and I look I wanted to spend a lot of time skin to skin so I was pretty much naked in the hospital um, for a lot of it but yeah the cleaner comes in or you're suddenly you know breastfeeding in front of family members that you would have never thought you would have been naked in front of Mm. so there was just kind of working through that experience Um, and then my therapist had mentioned to me that in during my pregnancy that some women can experience pleasure when they're breastfeed and that it can, you know, just because if they've used breasts in that way, it's a bodily, bodily function, um, the sucking motion may experience arousal or you know, increases oxytocin, we know that. And look, that wasn't my experience. I didn't experience pleasure while breastfeeding, but knowing that, made a world of difference just knowing that other women may or that it's a possibility and to like take that stigma away to because i know if i had experienced pleasure i would have thought that i was abusing my daughter that i was you know there was something off about that relationship like i know that's not true now but where i was if i had experienced that i would have thought something this is this is wrong. This is I off. Thought, like you were talking before about being in that really anxious state, um, where you have like what's called ego dystonic thoughts. So when you're mm. anxious, sometimes like I always think about it like the thing that is like the worst thing you could think of in the bottom of your soul where no one's allowed to go is often the thing that's gonna come up. And normalizing mm. those thoughts because breastfeeding is a really anxious time for a lot of people Mm. and so if your mind does go to oh my god what if i enjoy it oh my god what if i end up throwing my baby across the room like whether it's a thought whether it's a vision totally normal Mm. yeah yeah and i did have quite a lot of anxiety learning how to breastfeed because we had difficulties and so it it totally could have come up even the 
intrusive sexual abuse thoughts. Like mm. they didn't, thankfully, but you know, to know that I had a space where I could have spoken about that really opened me with my therapist, dropped straight into that because she knows me. Like I just knew, oh, at least if something happens around this, like I've got someone I can talk to. Yeah. Um, look, I, I found that I was very sexually detached from my breasts and I wasn't able to make any cross links between having those in the bedroom for like 18 months. Yeah. I'm still breastfeeding now. It will be three in um, February and it's okay now, but like it was a hard, hard no. And just I needed to know that that was normal too. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. something I previously enjoyed was now off the cards completely. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, rebuilding intimacy and sexual pleasure in the postpartum period after having experienced, you know, the birth that I had and the pregnancy that I had, um, that brought up a lot of things as well. And you know, I've done a lot of work around being able to communicate my desires and being able to talk about when things are okay and when they're not okay and that that yeah. changes day to day. Like yeah, it's... Sure. Yeah, it, it would depend on my mood. It would depend on, um, you know, even what I've discussed in therapy that week, whether or not I'm up for certain things in the bedroom, all that kind of thing. But it, it all rose and it was all something I had to work through while also being postpartum. Mm, <laughs> which, which is huge. Huge, huge, huge layer as well. Um, and then oh, something that was really hard was changing my daughter's nappies mm. um, I really struggled with that and I didn't talk about it with my therapist for a while because I was just I thought I was the only one and yeah I would be tense as I would walk in to change her and then I would I just had these feelings like she can't consent properly. She's a baby. She's not mm. able to tell me if she likes this or doesn't like this. What if I accidentally brush against her clitoris when I'm cleaning feces out of her, her vulva? What, you know, am I abusing her if I do that? Like what's, what's abuse and what's not abuse when you're changing a nappy? She's so vulnerable. Like, like, oh, like, oh, oh, it was you know how often you have to change a newborn snappy it was like rising to the surface 10 times a day and so i was able to develop a language around it and i was able to communicate with her and i have always from the very beginning spoken to her about her nappy changes and let her know in advance that i'm that we need to do it and you know try and seek consent in a way like you know, I'd ask, even though she's a baby and she yeah. can't talk and I'd wait for a body movement. I just tried to use, I tried to use a language between us. Mm. I think mainly to make me feel better, but it was just something that I was really concerned about. And I, I really struggled to even have my partner change her nappy. Mm. I struggled when her grandparents wanted to change her nappy. I didn't want her to be bare bottomed around anyone. Yeah. Like uh, this fear that she would be abused mm. was just yeah really strong and I was very protective of her I would walk into the room when her grandma would change her she wouldn't know that maybe if she listens to this podcast she'll, she'll understand why I hovered so much yeah. but it was yeah just this sense that I I was responsible for her safety and 
exposed genital genital wounds could lead to anything sort of thing and mm. so it's been a a big process to around um feeling okay with childcare, feeling okay with having other people look after my daughter mm. having to kind of have a sense of trust that humans are basically decent and mm. not everyone is out there to abuse my daughter but mm. really having to work through that as well um and then trusting that i have a good sense of intuition and i'm a good judge of character and i through having experienced sexual abuse and violence i I actually can kind of sense when people are not safe people and I can put blocks around certain things. And so in a way, having that experience makes me a very, very conscious parent around the fact that this is a possibility that will happen. And I won't be able to protect her from every circumstance ever, but we'll have a language to explore bodily autonomy and consent and safe people and secrets and all of this kind of thing so in a way it kind of brings a whole layer to my parenting that i'm quite grateful for yeah which is funny to say um <laughs> but rather than ignoring it or just going through the motions or just thinking it will never happen mm. like uh, you know i've got this sense that I, I can kind of set my daughter up as much as i can and then also if anything were to happen we have tools yeah. we have support and trauma is not a life sentence and there is growth that can happen after it and so it's while the thought of it is horrific on the surface i know that we, we could get through anything together sort of thing um i'm gonna check my notes <laughs> have a breath yeah my dog's barking as i said he would <laughs> um we've flipped into toddler breastfeeding now which has been really um quite healing for me so i'll just click so my dog comes here um in that i'm able to really hold claim on my body and tell my daughter when I'm not wanting to breastfeed. It's a different story when they're newborns and little babies and you know their their need for breast milk is all consuming and it you know you can't you can't offer other things and you can't do other things. Like sometimes it's breastfeeding and it's breastfeeding often and for hours and that's the yeah. way it is. Um, but as a toddler you have more wiggle room and she's you know creeping up to three and I know that there are other things that we can do instead of breastfeeding if I don't want to. Yeah. And being able to, on a daily basis, say, I don't want to do that right now, Elle. This is mum, mummy's body. This is my breast. Mm. She used to call them her boobies. And so we've really done a lot of work around, <laughs> no, no, these are mummies. <laughs> these are mummies. Um, I've, I found it really healing. And mm. I've actually found sharing my body through breastfeeding and the connection that I have through my daughter through breastfeeding really healing. And now that's not to say that's the case for everyone. I know that some um, survivors are very nervous about breastfeeding, very nervous about, you know, the, the loss of control and some survivors will choose not to breastfeed. And, you know, there's gotta be an openness and a willingness to hear that conversation too. Uh, but in my experience, it has been something 
through the support that I've received through my family, like the my biggest breastfeeding advocates, yeah, I found it really, really beautiful to be able to just know that my body is not broken, it's magical, we speak a language together, I can anticipate moments before she's even going to cry, I can get letdowns when I'm thinking about her on the way to pick her up from her nanny's house. Like it's given me a, a real way to check in with my body mm. in a way that I haven't ever had before. Yeah. So that was an unexpected delight. And I think it's why I'm really happy to continue breastfeeding until not not when she decides to stop because it is a relationship and it'll be when we both so it's either going to be when i want to stop or when she wants to stop and we both want to do it together um but because now i'm really clear on my boundaries and i don't just breastfeed all day every day i feel like we can get through another two years if we both want to because i'm receiving so many gifts from from that long-term relationship as well um, yeah, I think that's the main things that I wanted to talk about. Did you have any questions from things that I've mentioned? I guess in terms of for people who are listening, who are birth workers, will then say, mm -hmm. what could have been done differently? So we sort of, if we go back to the start, I guess, where from that moment where you ticked a box on the form, what would you like to have been done differently? Which is a very loaded question because mm. I'm careful about how I'm saying this. It's implying that it's something that you should have done or didn't do. Oh, yeah. No, I don't interpret at that all. As, yeah. The onus is not, you know, like it's what I can't even remember what the phrases I'm looking for, but like we've got to stop, you know, asking people who are the survivors or victims or whatever terminology you want to use and find useful for the answer and for the solution it comes mm. from that but i guess it's the it's a kind of it's a two-loaded thing because i know a thing that happens a lot is it's kind of like oh i just want to drop this and run and so mm. through that process of well let me not put words in your mouth what would you like to have been done different in terms of choices options yeah. maybe instead of like here's yeah. one thing you should do maybe yeah. we can talk about what are some options that might be helpful yeah I think um, a really important one is choosing a care model that uh, will support you. And look, we don't have a lot of options in, in Australia in terms of continuity of care. It's, it's, mm. not, it's not as widespread as it should be. Uh, in Wollongong, only 9% of women who apply to that midwifery group program get in. So I didn't have, that choice was taken away from me. Mm. But whether or not I had more serious discussions potentially with my doula or with myself or with my partner about, okay, I can quite clearly see that this model of care, shared care with the hospital, I'm going to see like so many different people. They're not going to know my name. What do I want? Like I, I thrive in relationships. Where am I going to get that? Mm -hmm. And if I had thought more seriously about that, I, I would have explored independent midwives and, and mm -hmm. home birth. Now that has a cost attached to it. It would have cost me $5,000. It's not yeah. accessible to everyone. Um, but, you know, I wish, I wish I would have explored that more. So really digging deep into your care model. 
Um, if you're birthing in the private system and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to get continuity of care because I'm going to have an obstetrician and I'll know that person all through the system. Mm -hmm. But then you've got to think about, okay, well, what are their intervention rates? Mm. What are their episiotomy rates? How often do they use cervical examinations in their mm. routine practice? What does their induction rate look like? And so you need to kind of be armed with these things because all of the interventions in births in the megaclise system may or may not have repercussions on your trauma. Like it. So really digging into that side of things. I would say... If someone discloses to you, then it, it needs to inform your practice and it needs to be more than one conversation or just a, okay, yep, all right. Um, so whether that doula then goes and explores resources around how to support survivors of sexual abuse, the language that they could use, asking the person what language they like or, or you know, what they know about their experience and what they would like, um, how they would like support, like giving the person permission to ask for what they want mm -hmm. and to, to call in the kind of support that they need. So that might be the doula going to appointments at the hospital with them. And that, that could be out of what a, a normal client doula relationship might look like. Um, typically we meet in people's homes and we have, prenatal sessions and that kind of thing. But if you've got a client that is like, I need support at my appointments, yeah. then you could package up something around that. Um, it might be debriefing after every single appointment on the phone and you know, saying, or debriefing before and giving that person a script to work off. So sometimes survivors or we can struggle with boundaries or we can struggle with language and we can struggle with a hard no. So having a script or being able to practice a script with the doula. So the doula might say, okay, you're going to your 40 week appointment, hundred percent. The topic of induction is going to come up. Yeah. Do you want to like workshop how you would respond to that? Mm. And maybe it's even, you have like a piece of paper yeah. printed out. And if you, you could, you know, Lotus, my friend and a fellow Dynamo doula, she says every single appointment that she went to, she walked in and said, hello, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. Now, not everyone can do that. Not everyone, not everyone can be Lotus. Lotus not everyone can be Lotus. Whole, but yeah. if, if you had a piece of paper and you handed hmm. it to them or there was some way or if the doula is there and the doula was able to say, are you aware that so-and-so is a sexual abuse trauma, trauma survivor and we need to be you know, mm. mindful of this. Like bringing it up more than one and done and nothing changes from that yeah. disclosure. Because that's more harmful than anything. That's just like, mm. okay, well, why did I share that if nobody's going to do anything with it again? Yeah, which re-traumatizes potentially from your first experience of ever telling anyone anything yeah and it not being taken that. seriously or someone saying oh that's not that bad or you know yeah mm. it, can, it can bring up so much and honestly just having a safe and supportive witness just someone listening to you and acknowledging that you know it is tough and anticipating like Angela Gallo has the term like doula hawk eye and I would say that you would use that not only in the in birth and labor but during the pregnancy like anticipate certain behaviors mm -hmm. anticipate that anxiety 
may be heightened, anticipate that the, the final weeks of pregnancy may be even harder for this person and they're already hard for everyone. Mm. Um, but just like going into it, knowing that there's a lot of psychological and emotional support that really needs to be given to this person. And then for that doula to have a network of support who they can debrief with, especially if they've themselves experienced trauma, mm. um, you know, not offloading, offloading their experience, but having, having people like Lotus or, or like yourself where they could potentially book in a session with and be like, oh, this is happening. Like I need to, mm. I need support. I need resources. Um, because I think just going in blind and hoping for the best is, mm. is going to end up in dual disappointment in some way because that yeah. person will look back on their experience and think, oh, I wish I, wish I had more from you. Mm. I think and that, it is asking a lot of a doula and yeah. like I want to acknowledge that, but yes. it's part of our role and we work with women and women are sexually abused. Yeah. And so we can't bury our head in the sand and just believe that our clients are going to be the exception to that rule. Not at all. I think um, for me in thinking about how I would like people to practice, I suppose, is that choice is on both ends. The choice mm. from the person revealing what would you like to have happen next? One option is I've disclosed, I don't want to talk about it any further, or I don't want mm. to talk about it at this appointment. Mm. You know, you can talk about it and the like practices and procedures and how you would like them altered without going into details. Mm. But it's the same like for the person on the receiving end. I also absolutely don't think it should be like here, this has landed. An option has to be okay this is outside of my area of expertise. You can still mm. support someone without supporting them through that particular pocket mm. in the sense of actually having to do something. I think sometimes people, or at least when I get questions from people, it's often this desire to do something, like give me mm. something to do. Like it might just come back to the checking if it's okay to touch the person's hand. Yes, if it's okay to mm. touch the hand, then exactly like you were talking about before. You might use that as an anchor. It might not be doing or saying anything, but mm. it, it can also be a, I've got no idea what I want. Oh, good. I've got no idea how to help you, which mm. you probably wouldn't <laughs> phrase like that. Yeah. But th there's not some magical thing that you can swoop in and do in like a postnatal, prenatal appointment that's like going to be like, oh, wow, this is all amazing. It's just human connection. Yeah. And I think choices, building in choices. And if you also as a midwife or a doula are finding that too confronting to deal with, um, mm. not really the word I want, deal with, but receive. Mm. There's ways through that as well. That doesn't have to be like, okay, I'm supporting this person and I'm really struggling to support this person through this. Mm. There's ways to do that without, as I said, doing anything in particular. Yeah, and knowing who having a toolkit of other people that you can refer on. Like I was in therapy all throughout my pregnancy and postpartum experience. So I was seeing my therapist weekly. I never had long gaps where I felt like I didn't have support. And, and, and maybe that's a suggestion that could be made or it's other forms of embodiment practices, dancing, like, yeah, even when it comes to, to labor and birth, like the potential of that, birthing person to maybe disassociate from their body if they've never like leaned into the pain 
before or they've um, had a body felt sense of disassociation when things are really difficult and anxiety inducing. Mm. And so as a doula, it could, it could be bringing that person back to the moment through dancing, through stomping, through, you know, vocalization. So it's mm -hmm. the normal doula things that you do to support a woman through labor, any woman, but just always having it in the back of your mind that, this this person has an extra special set of circumstances as well mm. um and to to help that and inform the practice but yeah no it's you know doulas can't be responsible and there's no saving there's no like fixing or solving this the person that is experiencing it like needs to come to their own healing journey and however that is but just having the awareness as well that um certain certain birth interventions could be could make it more difficult for them and that sort of thing. And then having space after birth to provide an opportunity to debrief, to refer on if necessary. And I just, you know, you can't fault the doula human to human relationship. There is just, there's magic that happens in that, in that alone. It's just mm -hmm. getting to know someone on such a deep level and witnessing their transformation. And, you know, that can sometimes be totally enough <laughs> as well yeah. more, than enough. Yeah. more than enough i think um as opposed to even with trauma in general something i was thinking about just when you were talking is like even just the power of like facial expression and mm. then pockets so there's not a lot but there's pockets of research showing that when you're in that active trauma whether you're stuck in like dissociation or something else there's some research showing that when you're in that, you tend to interpret neutral faces as being threatening. Okay. Um, something, yeah, that I was just reminded of when you were talking, it's like, yeah, how much my own doula, even just her, like not getting up in my face, but sort of just mm. putting her face near my face and mm. kind of showing me that she was concerned because mm. at the time, you know, when all the things were happening around me, everybody right. did that, like, keep a straight face because mm. they think... I think it's not even a conscious thing. It's just like, oh, all right, we don't yeah. want to hold on that we think something might be wrong. And so having somebody, and my husband's just like the most stoic, you know, whatever guy yeah. anyway. So actually having someone show me without like interjecting all her, like I'm pretty concerned, but just mm. seeing someone else's face that's encouraging or like just being real and going, yeah, I don't know what's going on now. I found that really, really reassuring. Yes, yeah. Just facial expression. Yeah, because it's just like acknowledging that what you're actually feeling is real. Like everyone <laughs> else is kind of ignoring what's, I mean, they're attending to you and they needed to, to do their jobs. But mm. having, having your doula just mimic you, like reflect mm -hmm. what you're feeling back to you. Yeah, that's really powerful. Mm. And I would say and, that's two things. Like even but not, if you had no skills in this whatsoever, mm. you could... It, it is difficult, I think, when you're the midwife or the obstetrician and you've got, like, a role that involves, like, emergency procedures. Absolutely. Mm. But I think we can take two seconds to just look at somebody. Mm. Like, look at them. Don't necessarily put up your whole, everything's fine, kind of face. I think about, like, the eyebrows going up. Yeah. Or just yeah. hold someone's hand. Like, that's yeah. human connection, like you're talking about. Which yeah. requires no, like loads of training or anything else yeah. yeah and that might not be true for everybody everybody will have different things but that's something that can be explored what would help you feel 
safe? What would help you feel grounded? What would help you feel like you're got some control and got some choice? That's kind of what we're getting at the crux of, I'm hoping. Yes, they're great questions. And you should be asking any birthing person those, mm. but particularly in this circumstance as well. Yeah. Mm. Do you have resources, anything that you want to share that you've found useful, helpful, things for people to go away and read in case they want to? Uh, look, I personally haven't read a lot um, birth-related stuff. I've read survivors of sexual assault stuff. And look, I feel like some of that is, is just too heavy handed mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, sometimes too dense. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, is that how you yep. say his name? I think that's a good one um, for people just to understand how trauma, how trauma is a felt body experience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do love the work of Lotus and I think she's doing really powerful work, Lotus Fire. Uh, she's a dynamo doula, but she's very, very trauma informed and has a personal history herself, which I, yeah, I've actually, having gone through the therapeutic process and I'm coming out the other side of it and now I'm immersed in this different world, I'm actually really finding the disclosure of someone's trauma to be healing for me. Mm. And I guess you don't get that in a traditional therapeutic setting. Um, you don't tend to learn very much about your therapist's life or their own experiences. I have learned a little bit about mine because ours is psychotherapy and it's, it's a little bit different. But uh, just knowing that Lotus has gone through this herself and then that she's speaking from a place of personal experience, I really mm -hmm. love and I have connected to that myself. And um, she has just la launched a magazine called I Know Another Mother and it's Mother's Experience of childhood sexual abuse and I think reading stories like that being immersed in other people's experiences you could just gain a lot from that as well mm -hmm. just to know how trauma manifests itself in physical reactions in intrusive thoughts in behaviors kind of getting an understanding on that mm. uh, look it's not light reading it's not <laughs> it, yeah. it would take a commitment to kind of seek this stuff out but I think it's important uh, and then, you know, bringing it back, number one, the doula needs to be looking after themselves. The doula needs to be modelling self-care. The doula needs to be managing their energy um, in any situation. It doesn't matter about previous experiences, but you are responsible for the energy that you bring into a pregnant person's space and a birthing yeah. woman's space and know that that can impact them as well. Take some time today to move today's conversation through your body. Get up, go for a walk, have a shower, dance in your kitchen, do something to shift any tension that might have come up. I've been working with survivors of sexual assault for over a decade. So if you want therapy, support, coaching around this, we can totally work together. Go to drerin.com.au or at drerinbow on Instagram. Rachel's also available, whether that's for doula, breastfeeding or business needs support. She is amazing. Rachel Rose, so two A's in Rachel, .com .au, or she's at Instagram at 
the underscore Rachel underscore Rose. Now, hope is a doing word. My hope is that warm, empathic, intuitive workers will stay in birth, but we need to do something. Take a big step and work on some of the fears that you have. To stay in the helping and healing professions, you need to level up your self-care and support. And if you're struggling to even do human 101 with sleep, nourishment, rest and so on, how are you going to serve anyone? You owe it to yourself and the people that you serve to make sure that your cup is running over and you're thriving. And if you're identifying with the wounded healer, you are burnt out. You are loving your work, but you're sitting here going, I don't know if I can go on like this. Let me help you. I've got some openings in my coaching calendar and I'd love to support you. And if you want to sign up for updates on my birth trauma training course, you can also do that. Don't forget that the mini training, so the little bite-sized, two lots of 90-minute training, starts this week, October 24th. Reach out to me, drerin.com.au, at drerinbell on Instagram. Thank you for making time for yourself to feel uncomfortable. I know it wasn't easy. Thank you for growing and learning from those experiences. And thank you so much for allowing me to speak my passions and do my soul work.